0: leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger more resilient more determined and more committed to excellence today i'm speaking with joshua shea he is a coach author and speaker who shares his story and educates people about pornography addiction. He's been pornography free since 2014, and he believes that if we can begin to talk more about porn addiction and mental health, others may be able to address their addictions before they devolve to the unhealthy levels that he reached. Uh, Joshua is a uh, TEDx speaker, He has addressed the issues that come with being a partner of a porn addict and raising children in a world of high-speed internet access. He's been interviewed more than 250 times. He's written three books, designed an online course for partners, and he coaches both addicts and partners. We're going to dig into really what porn addiction is and really get a sense of how one can recognize it, um, how better to approach it uh, from, whether it's you that's addicted or if you're the partner of someone that's addicted. And uh, I just wanna say thank you, Josh, for coming on. Um, I I really appreciate you, you agreeing to do this interview and And I've been looking forward to talking to you. So thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me, Dave. I appreciate you uh, letting me speak to your audience about this issue because it's something that so few people still want to talk about. But if we're going to talk about pornography addiction in this world, we need to be able to uh, kind of man up and and uh, recognize that, despite the fact it involves sex and nudity and those little things in the back of your head, you don't want to admit you're curious about or need to be, you know itches that need to be scratched. Um, we need to grow up and and talk about this because we're in a world now where it's a serious issue, and the longer we don't address it, the worse it's going to be once we finally do.
0: before we really dig into, this, this path that you're on right now, all the research that you've done, the books that you've written, I kind of want to get a sense of what led you to this point in your life. And um, I read that you, you were born and raised in central Maine, and that's where you currently reside. Um, what was life like growing up in, in Maine? Uh, well, Maine is one
1: of those places where people hear you're from there and they tell you how beautiful it is. And usually the next sentence has something to do with lighthouses and lobsters. Um, and while I'm sure that's, I could do that for many of the places I've been, uh, you know, stereotyping the tourism type stuff. Um, you know, the other 42 weeks a year, it's not that great here, which we're in the middle of right now. Um, but it was, it was a good place to grow up. It was safe. My parents uh, had rough upbringings um, in their you know, respective families. Um, I think what probably ultimately drew them to each other was that they could give my brother and I, in the 1980s, the 1950s upbringing they didn't get and that they probably felt gypped out of. So in, in a way, despite the fact that you know it was 1980, uh, Maine is very off the beaten path. We're the only state that borders one other state. Um, we're kind of tucked away up there and forgotten about. Um, it was a very uh, 1950s kind of upbringing for me. Um, and it was, uh, it was safe. Um, Unfortunately, uh, the biggest mistake my parents made um, was that they chose a caregiver for me, a babysitter, who I went to when I was young, when they were at work. My parents were both elementary school teachers. Um, They chose a babysitter for me who was uh, very, very uh, inappropriate with children, uh, sexually, physically, mentally. Um, It was a really rough time. There was a bunch of abuse that I didn't talk about because I was too scared to. And that's where I developed some maladaptive coping methods, where I developed survival skills, where I kind of developed the mantra of just survive to the next day. That's all you have to do. Uh, Lie, cheat, steal. The whole idea is just to get to tomorrow in one piece. Say what you have to say, do what you have to do. And uh, when I was 12 years old, an older cousin, uh, They exposed me to hardcore pornography in the form of magazines. Uh, Keep in mind, this was the late 80s. um, Magazines for the first time. And I will tell you that a warm feeling came over me. I didn't take years to develop an addiction. I was an addict within the first couple minutes of seeing that hardcore pornography for the first time at 12 years old. The only other time I ever felt like this was about two years later, when I was fourteen, and I got drunk at a wedding for the first time ever. And suddenly it was it was like, okay, I feel smarter. I'm a better dancer. I don't have stress, uh, you know, and all the, all those angsty things that teenagers go through. plus, all of this stuff that happened to me as a kid that I was now successfully repressing, I think because of the pornography or or in help with the pornography. So really from 12 years old in porn, 14 years old with alcohol, all the way up to 37 years old, which was coming up on eight years, I had two things in my life I could depend on, and that was pornography and alcohol. Whether I was in high school or college or starting my career, whether I was married or dating or had nobody, uh, the only two things that I could count on for those 23, 24 years were porn and alcohol um, until... They just reared their ugly head to the point that it was a perfect storm, and uh, my life imploded. I hit rock bottom. I had to go off to rehab. Uh, I I went to alcohol rehab first. That was where I ironically discovered that I had a porn addiction, because I don't think I had, this was going back to early 2014, I don't think I'd heard of porn addiction then. I'd heard of sex addiction, but to me, that's intercourse addiction, and I didn't have that. Um, I had porn addiction. And it took a little while, but my case manager uh, had me start to meet with a certified sex addiction therapist off campus from the rehab. And he was the one who first was able to really have me understand that addiction is a disease that porn addiction is real, and that not only did I have porn addiction, but that it predated my alcoholism, which was obvious, and uh, that the porn addiction may have actually caused more problems in my life overall than the alcoholism. The reality is, Dave, that I just I, I just thought I made bad decisions when I drank. It wasn't until I, you know I sat there and broke it down with that that expert that it was pretty clear. I came home from uh, rehab, did about a year's worth of therapy, decided to go back to rehab. And this time I went to one in Texas specifically for uh, sex and porn addiction. And uh, I hadn't looked at porn or utilized pornography in a year by the time I went to that second rehab, which was fantastic because while everybody else was still very much white knuckling and withdrawing, I could focus on the trauma side of things. And that's where recovery really became clear to me what it was and how I had to get to that trauma and how that was the, that was the, uh, genesis of all of these problems. And, you know, long story short, here I am seven, eight years later, trying to give back, trying to somehow even the karmic score with all the people that I hurt and, uh, and and relationships I destroyed along the way. Um, Trying to help people because when I was a kid, there was no high speed internet. And now if you can spell, you know, man screws woman, you can see a man screwing a woman very easily. And six year olds can spell that. We are living in a different world now. And it's so much easier to end up as a porn addict. It's so much easier to end up where I did. And what I wonder is if we had the knowledge of porn addiction that we are now developing back when I was a kid, is there anything that could have been said or done to stop me? Um, I don't know, I'll never know, but at least I can try to help people not go down a path that I did.
0: What advice do you give people now if, if they're concerned about their, their children? Um, viewing porn or, uh, you know, whether it's like teenage boys or whatever. Yeah. And it's,
1: and then the reality is there's almost as many teenage girls watching now too. Um, You know, 50 years from now, we are not going to be talking about porn as a man's issue. Um, It's just that in the, you know, seventies through the nineties, there was one audience that pornographers could count on straight white men. And it costs so much more to make and distribute porn back then. That's the audience they went for. Now that you have a million and one porn sites and it's so much less expensive to produce porn, you've got porn targeted at everybody. And now that it's so much... Uh, more secretive that you can get it at home and nobody knows, you're seeing a lot of those uh, other communities, whether it be religious or female or, or other communities that were ignored, now actually being played to specifically. So it is going to even out over time. If you look at you know straight white men, as far as uh, who's, who's who's reporting addiction, we don't fall into the top five anymore because it's been around for us forever. It's now women and, and, and uh, Black men and Latin men and religious people, you know, people in the Catholic church, uh, a lot of people in the LDS church who are reporting addiction. And this is because we have such unfettered access to it and i don't want anybody to think that i am a let's abolish pornography anti-porn guy that can't happen we tried that with with prohibition and drinking isn't even natural sexuality is natural you and i are only here talking because one night we each had a set of parents that got busy and created us Sexuality is a normal thing and it's not going anywhere. What we need to understand is how, it now that it's delivered to us through internet at such high speeds and at such great varieties, we have to understand that kids are going to see it younger and what that means and how we can keep it away from them. So the first thing I tell parents is you need to understand with pornography it's not a matter of if your kids are going to see it it's a matter of when the average child now sees porn for the first time, usually about 11 years old. Um, And you can put, you know, whenever I do a presentation at a library or a church or something like that, I've always got a parent or two who comes up and says, you know, we don't have to worry. We've got filters on our kids' phones. And it's like, you know, congratulations, you you locked down one phone out of the 4.8 billion in this world. Um, What happens when your kid's on the school bus and, the kid next to him has his phone and shows him the latest garbage from Pornhub. And what's your kid going to do? If you don't know if what they're going to do, if you don't know what they're going to say, you haven't porn proofed your kid because ultimately you can't porn proof your kid. You can prepare them and preparing your child for pornography can be a multi-tiered process that starts when they are young and it's not a big deal. Uh, you know, simply, things you already say, like, you know, don't let anybody ever take a picture of you without your clothes off. And you don't ever take a picture of anybody with their clothes off. You tell that to a five-year-old, that's not threatening. That's not scary. It's just, you don't do this. And here's how you cross the street. And here's how you do this and that. You can make it matter of fact and not make it a big, scary deal. The don't look at porn speech or the way you deal with it is similar to the don't use drug speech or don't smoke cigarettes in my house speech, don't drink in my house speech. You know, you can use this stuff as an adult. When you're older, you will make your own decisions, but we don't do this here. These are the rules of this house. It's not the birds and the bees speech. It doesn't have to be. Just because pornography depicts sexuality in various ways doesn't mean you have to have the here's how babies are made speech. This is something, it's more about a warning about you know what, what this can do to a kid. And when they're five, you deliver one message. When they're seven, you deliver another. When they're nine, another, 13, another. And hopefully by the time they, they get up there, they've got enough guidance from you to recognize that if they are going to wade into those waters, that there are sharks there and they need to be careful of them.
0: We just covered what, You might say to your child but how do you recognize it in yourself or in your partner like how how would you say you know what would you tell somebody or how would you evaluate somebody as to whether or not they have a porn addiction
1: well um when i'm coaching uh people uh probably i see for for the addict side of things it's probably 80 percent men 20 percent women when it's partners, it's exactly switched. It's it's eighty percent women, twenty percent men. But what I uh, what I really point at first is uh, when people say, you know, I think I may have a problem. I you know, how do I know if I have a problem? And I would say, well, tell me about your vacuuming addiction. And they're like, well, what do you mean? And like, no, just tell me about your vacuuming addiction. Well, I don't have a vacuuming addiction. Well, you don't even ask yourself if you have a vacuuming addiction, no. Well, that's because you don't. If you're asking, nobody has a vacuum, maybe somebody does, but nobody has a vacuuming addiction. Nobody is asking themselves about a vacuuming addiction. Nobody is worried about a vacuuming addiction because they don't have one you're worried about a porn addiction because you recognize your behavior is not healthy. You are concerned about it. So the moment there's a concern that should be the flag that goes off that you go talk to somebody who, who uh, has been there or who can uh, better diagnose you, uh, tell you where you are, where is the bar? What's actually, you know, interesting is that I get a lot of male clients from talking to their wives first, where they'll come to me with betrayal trauma and be talking about how you know, I, I just, you know, you got better, you fixed yourself. You know, can you talk to my husband? Can you do this? And I will. And unfortunately, for a lot of these women, after talking to their husband for 10 minutes. This, the guy's not a porn addict. You know, the woman has told him, the wife has said, I don't like this. I don't want you doing this. I don't want, uh, you know, porn to be part of our lives. And he's not addicted. He's just kind of a bad husband or a bad boyfriend. He's just not listening and not caring about your, your opinions. It, It has nothing to do with addiction you know, not being a good boyfriend or a good husband is not about being an addict. And probably one out of seven or eight women, you know, I have to go back to them after and say, you're not talking about addiction problems here. You're talking about relationship problems and them not caring about your feelings. And that can come off as addiction because you want to believe that there's no possible way that your your partner could be like that. But that's unfortunately the way it is sometimes. Ultimately, um, if you believe you have a problem, you have a problem. Um, your problem may be you don't know how bad your problem is. You know, there are people who I, I thought, like I told you, I thought I was just an alcoholic. And then when we looked at my porn addiction, it was like, oh, my goodness, I am in a, an advanced stage of this, if not a fully critical stage of this. And I was able to explain it away to myself as alcoholism and I was a fall down drunk at the very end. It's not easy to hide that. I smelled like alcohol, I slurred, I you know, had the mood swings. It was obvious I was an alcoholic. It's usually pretty obvious when somebody has a chemical addiction. However, pornography is what is known as a process addiction. That's gambling, food, uh, video games, it's much easier to hide these because there are no telltale signs. It's, you know, if you can just kind of lie to someone's face as all good addicts can do, um, you can get away with it for a very long time because there aren't telltale
0: signs like many other addictions. You mentioned advanced stage. Are there stages of porn addiction?
1: Absolutely. Um, You've got your, your, your early stages of addiction. Most people don't realize they're there. Most people can't spot it, even with chemical type things. You know, let's go out and party. Let's go out. You know, we drink a lot and everybody drank a lot. And well, the next day people are hung over and they don't feel the need to do it again. Or they're like, oh, I'm not drinking for a while. But the next night you remember the bliss, so you go back to it despite the fact it was it was negative. Uh, and that's kind of what addiction is. People have to recognize addiction is addiction is addiction is addiction. 95% of addiction is the same. You know, Food addiction doesn't take place in the stomach and gambling addiction doesn't take place in the wallet. Cocaine addiction doesn't take place in the nose and sex and porn addiction doesn't take place in your crotch. All addiction takes place in your brain. That's where it happens. That's where the happy chemicals that live in your pleasure centers, the dopamine, the oxytocin, the serotonin, melatonin, and the couple others that are up there that you're craving, that's what addicts go after. That's why they continue to uh, maintain their addictions, even when they often realize they're addicted, even when they can see negative repercussions in their life based on their addiction. It's just for an addict, it's completely Different. The reason why I would sit in front of my laptop and look at pornography was not that I just wanted to masturbate, not that I just wanted to see pretty girls or sexy things or like that. It actually calmed my mind. And that's what, you know, I don't know exactly. I think I was exposed to alcohol and pornography first. So that's why I ended up, those ended up being what it was for me and not something else. But addiction is about you know, calming and maintaining that storm you have going in your head. And for almost everybody, that storm, the cause of it is trauma from childhood.
0: So with the the stages of addiction, you, you were saying that most likely it, it's that addiction to the dopamine dump. Um,
1: yeah, ab- that's, that's, absolutely. It is because that you learn that can make you feel better now better can mean different things for uh my alcohol addiction that was really just about numbing that was about removing stress that was about kind of just lopping off my nerve endings so i could be numb my pornography addiction was about power and was about control because when I was a young kid being abused at that babysitter's house, I fully believe that I told myself I would never give power like that to anybody ever again. I would never let anybody be able to dictate, you know, every second of my day and everything that was done to my body or what I did to my body, the 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 kind of mental and emotional garbage that I had placed upon me. And... When you think about pornography, whether it's a magazine or even sitting down at, you know, one of the popular porno sites online, when you think about it, you can be with anybody you want, man or woman or something in between, any color of the rainbow, any race, any type of you you could be with three or four women or three or four men or three or four men and women. While little leprechauns dance around and a bunch of guys play mariachi music and fish sticks fall from above because I'm sure there is porn of that out there. There's porn of everything out there. And when you are sitting at your computer, you are the master of the universe. If you don't like what you're seeing, boom, hit a a button and there's something new there. Don't like that? Boom, hit a button, something new there. And nobody on that screen is ever going to look at you and say, no, I don't like you. I don't want you to look at me. I don't want you to touch me. Nobody on that screen is ever going to further say, hey, you didn't take the trash out. Hey, you got to go walk the dog. Nobody is going to say you are 15 minutes late to work. Or, you know, we're docking your paycheck this week. Nobody's ever going to say that kind of stuff to you because you are in your own universe where you are basically the god of the sexual universe. Anything you want is in front of you. And if I look at my timeline of my life, if I look at those times when porn addiction was at its worst, those were the times when I had the least control in my life. When I felt like I didn't have power, when I felt like I couldn't control things, I used it as a surrogate to tell myself that I did have power, that I did have control. As long as I could get onto the computer, as, you know, as long as I could pour myself a big tumbler of Red Bull and tequila, and as long as I could sit there in front of my laptop and go through the, the porn websites or chat rooms or whatever it was I was on, as long as I did that, I still had some kind of control and some kind of power in my life, um, and obviously, you know that's that's almost silly saying it out loud now. But when you've had half of a fifth of tequila up to that point, you can convince yourself of just about anything. And then once the dopamine and and serotonin get going because of the porn addiction, you can convince yourself of just about anything.
0: When when we're talking about porn addiction and the repercussions I'm you know you're not going to see it in the same form that you would from like substance abuse uh, addiction to drugs or alcohol Um, maybe some of the the relationships you might damage some of the relationships in similar ways but I was wondering if you could talk about the effects of porn addiction, and and how it can hurt your life.
1: Yeah, well, um, I'll I'll start with the addiction part of things. Um, you know, addiction does fall in the you know mental health classifications. It's covered by the American Psychological Association, uh, which does put out the DSM, which is the manual, and it's 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 of. Uh, of uh, diagnostic conditions. It's how you diagnose, that's where you find addiction. So it falls under mental health. Almost everybody who is an addict has a mental health issue. Myself, I've got bipolar disorder. I also have PTSD from the things that happened to me when I was a kid. Um, it, that, like I said, that's almost true of all addicts. While all addicts have mental illness, it's important to point out that not everybody with mental illness is an addict. Um, you know, it's that's an important uh designation to make. Um I think what is what is the biggest thing is that you do not feel like you have control of yourself. You feel like there is another entity in control of you, whether it's your mind, your body, a little devil on your shoulder, whatever it is despite the fact that, you know, addiction really comes and people will, will, will recognize this who are addicts of anything, is that you make deals with yourself all the time. I'm only going to, you know, I'm only going to go to the bar and have two, two beers. And, Five beers later, you're still there. You know, I'm gonna sit down. I'm gonna look at porn for 30 minutes, and three hours later, you're still looking because you can't find that perfect piece of pornography to finish up with to get that dopamine hit. Um, you know, you really are a slave to this stuff. You really, and it's it's hard for people who aren't addicts or have never experienced addiction to understand. I'm not looking at this stuff because I want to see, you know, great breasts or somebody's somebody's butt. I don't really care about seeing a sexual act. What I care is getting those chemicals in my head going because if they don't get going, I feel as an active addict, I'm not going to survive. And I can put this in terms uh, for people who haven't experienced addiction. Um, Tomorrow, if you're like your typical American, uh, especially if you're under 50, uh, when you wake up, turn your phone uh, alerts on. Turn every alert, everything that can buzz, beep, vibrate, turn them all up, every push notification, and then take a post-it note and just put it across the front of your phone so you can't see the screen, and then put that next to you. I guarantee you, if you're like most typical people in this world, your phone is going to make a noise in the next five, six minutes. You can't look at it because the post-it note is there. And then probably in three or four more minutes, you're going to get some other notification. Maybe somebody's trying to text you. Maybe somebody is trying to tell you that they like your Instagram post. Or maybe somebody's trying to call you with huge important news, whatever it is you can't look because you've got that post-it note there on your phone. If you're like your typical American or or even citizen of earth, especially if you're a younger person, uh, those who have tried this either don't last 90 minutes or don't last about six notifications because we are a society addicted to our cell phones. People need to know did somebody like my Instagram post is somebody trying to reach me? I mean, I'm sure you're, 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 you're probably around the same age as me. You remember when, if somebody died and they just have to call you on a regular phone. And if someone was on the phone, they'd just have to call back later. And it turned out the person was still dead. Um, That's, that's kind of, you know, we now live in a world where we get dopamine hits from every like from every I mean, do we need 7000 emojis to all basically say the same thing? Yeah, I saw this. But that's what we have. That's the society we live in. That's the addiction to people's phones people have. And if you can take that, and a lot of people can relate to having a little bit of an addiction to their phone, multiply that by 100, and that's what true addiction to drugs or any process like gambling or, or pornography is like. Um, and the other one thing I do want to say is that this isn't just about uh, addiction. Pornography itself is teaching a lot to our young people you know we've got teenage boys you know 12 13 14 years old who don't have girlfriends who don't have people teaching them about sex they go home from school every day they're watching you know online stuff they find and this is their sex education Those of us who have had relationships, those of us who have had, you know, uh, uh, meaningful sexual relationships with people, we understand that pornography is absolutely fiction. We know that people don't have sex like that in real life. We know that's not how people talk to each other and deal with each other in real life. You know, I think all these 12-year-old boys, all they want to do is probably become pizza servers based on the, uh, or pizza delivery guys based on all the videos you see, or, or a tennis instructor. They seem to do real well in the videos. But You know, you and I know that's it's not a documentary. It's not a reality show. It is fiction. And but these boys, especially the boys, although the girls are getting this too, these boys see men treat women in most porn, even the most vanilla porn. Uh, As an aggressor, you know, the man in a porn almost always has his hand around the girl's neck, and is saying horrible things to her and is bending her in ways that most people don't bend in real life. And this doesn't even talk about how all of these videos end, which is usually on the girl in a way that most of our wives and girlfriends would never let us finish. Yet these guys get these messages at a young age. And there's a phenomenon happening that I've been trying to talk more about lately because I've been talking to more women in the 18 to 22, 23 year old age group. And they are starting to have an aversion and are talking about this amongst their friends to having sex with virgin men. So there are a lot of virgin men who are going off to college Hoping that they'll you know finally have sex, and when they finally meet somebody who does, they start acting like Ron Jeremy or John Holmes or one of these other guys, and they turn into Mr. Joe porn star when that's not what these women want. Many of these women who have sexual experience, you know, see the guy all of a sudden become this other character entirely, they don't want to deal with it. They don't want to have to be like, no, that's not how you do this. Fine, I'll teach you. They don't want to deal with that crap. So there are there are a lot of women out there who, when they find out a guy is a virgin, they actually stay away. They don't try to... Uh, perpetuate a relationship. And that's how you start building up this incel culture and this red pill culture and this no fat culture, where these guys start to, you know, get together and just develop really nasty opinions and nasty attitudes towards women and towards sexuality. Because 10 years ago, eight years ago, whatever it was, porn taught them what a man was supposed to be. Now that has nothing to do with addiction, but that's what's happening in our world now, because we are just sending this stuff in a high speed fiber optic pipeline directly to our kids. And those of us from our generation who have these kids now, they, we were never taught anything. We were never taught. This was bad. It's bad to talk about. You don't admit you ever look at it. You don't admit you ever touch yourself. And, uh, Well, my parents just buried their head in the sand to this, so maybe that's the thing that I'm going to do as well. Well, unfortunately, this is not the same world that we had in the 1980s when you had to hope your dad had a Playboy in his bureau. Most people don't even recognize that during the pandemic here in America, Playboy magazine went out of business. That's how major the Internet is now. That's what a big deal the uh, high-speed internet coming to people are. And we are starting to understand how it affects people. We're starting to see the the results of research, but we just don't know enough yet. Um, But I can tell you, whether it's about addiction, whether it's about casual use, whether it's effect on children, effect on marriages, whatever it is, I have probably read over 250 or 300 academic papers on pornography. And I have never read one where the conclusion is, this is a good, healthy thing to engage in. Um, You know, I know there are plenty of people who never get negatively affected by pornography, but we need people to recognize it's possible. And if it's possible, how do you make sure you don't fall into that category? That's really
0: what I want to try to bring to this world. So how do you make sure that you don't fall into that category?
1: Well, I mean, it's education first and foremost. And that's why I said, you know, we're never going to be able to talk about porn addiction unless we can talk about pornography. And you and I have been talking now for 30, 40 minutes, and we haven't got graphic. Nothing we've said has been R-rated. You don't have to talk about what's on the screen with your kids or your partner. You don't have to get into the graphic content to discuss it as a topic, to discuss it as a thing. And You know, again, it goes to the fact that we are very skittish about talking about sexuality. And we are very skittish about admitting we are sexual creatures and sexual beings. And the sooner that we can all recognize this, maybe we can get healthier as a society. Um, Covenant Eyes, which is a great organization um, that uh, tries to uh, bring education to people about pornography addiction, they're a little bit uh, too religious for my tastes, but their heart is in the right place. They did a survey a few years back before the pandemic started interviewing thousands of guys, I think it was something like 2,500 or 3,000 men. In the 18 to 30 year old age group, and this is the scariest statistic in in my opinion that I share, is that between 32 and 33% of men under 30 years old said that they have an unhealthy relationship with pornography, they are developing an addiction or they have a full blown addiction. That's one out of three men under 30 who believes that they have an issue with pornography to some degree. They're going to be 40, and then they're going to be 50, and then 60. And coming behind them are going to be men who are reporting this in even higher numbers, and women who will be having numbers explode. You know, I really worry 20, 30 years from now that we will be living in a sexually very unhealthy society, and everybody will be wondering what happened, what happened. And the fact is, we are now where we were 40 years ago when it came to opioids. You know, you can go back and look as early as the 1960s with Dragnet and some cop shows talking about heroin. You can go back and listen to rap music from the 80s and they're already talking about abusing Vicodin. It's not like we couldn't see the opiate crisis coming. It's just that once it hit the people who aren't the gross ones, the people who aren't from the wrong side of the tracks, the people who, mat- who who don't matter in society. Once it got to all the good people, once it got to all the proper people, then politicians started caring. Then you know, the opioid crisis became the biggest thing we could talk about. Well, we bricked for 40 years and we're gonna brick for another 40 years on pornography if we don't start recognizing this is a problem now. We don't need a generation of grandfathers and great grandfathers out there who are addicted to porn. Before we do anything about it. That's why I'm out there just trying to spread education that this stuff can lead down a very, very damaging road. And uh, yeah, it, it isn't cocaine, it won't, you know, blow your brain apart, it won't stop your heart. But then again, it can absolutely destroy your marriage, it can absolutely destroy your relationships with people. Uh, There are people who found out that I was a porn addict, and I haven't talked to them since I live in a small town. And it came out pretty, it was, you know, it's a big enough town that, uh, you know, there, there are opportunities here, it's a small enough town that when you screw up, everybody finds out. I was well enough known that everybody found out there were people who have never talked to me since it came out publicly that I had a porn addiction and I've had to move on past them and I've had to internalize it's about them, not about me, but that's the society we live in. We are burying our heads in the sand when it comes to the effects of pornography addiction. And... Pornography addiction is not a moral failing; it's a health issue, and we need to view it as such. Um, and and until we do, we're going to continue to become a very unhealthy sexual society. And the pandemic has done nothing but exponentially make this so much worse, so much faster.
0: I was I was reading in your bio that you're, or actually was on your website, I read that uh, you're a certified betrayal trauma coach. Mm-hmm. What does that entail? Like, who are your patients or who are your clients? And, and what are you coaching them through?
1: Yeah, well, um, I, I'm, I'm very classic when it comes to betrayal trauma clients, we always mainly think about the partners who have cheated on each other, uh, infidelity. Uh, but really, and, and, and infidelity can be with pornography as well. That's, that's mostly what I deal with. But betrayal trauma can be any kind of trauma when you have told yourself in your mind that 100%, without a doubt, black and white, this is the way things are. And then one day they aren't that way anymore. And if you've been believing five years, 10 years, 20 years, things are a certain way. And then you find out they're not, that can really do a number on you. You know, if, if I were to tell you that the sky was yellow you'd laugh at me. And then, you know, if I took you outside and said, no, no, I'm sorry, Dave, the sky is yellow. We've all been lying to you. Um, And I pop a couple lenses out of your eyes and the sky is yellow. You are going to think, you know, what the F is going on here? What... What else have you lied about? What, else, what, what can I believe? What can't I believe? And this can come from things as simple as, you know, a parent making what they think is an innocuous promise to a kid, and it doesn't happen. It can come from something like just moving from one town to another and having a rough adjustment in the new town if you're a kid. You know, it, it, it is basically just your entire world that you believe is true, something, some major piece is pulled out of it. It's like a Jenga puzzle. Somebody pulls a piece at the bottom and the whole thing can go tumbling. And, you know, especially when it comes to betrayal and especially when it comes to being from the person who you think is your life partner, who you think always has your back. Suddenly you find out that this guy or this girl has been looking at pornography for 10 years, that you notice, gee, we haven't been having a lot of sex lately. And gee, am I the problem here? One of the biggest issues I face as a, Uh, trauma coach is trying to make the, the client recognize they had nothing to do with their partner's addiction. They had nothing to do with the decisions they made. In my instance, I became a porn addict at 12 years old. I met my wife when I was 26. She found out I was a porn addict when it all came out when I was 37. So I had been a Porn addict for 14 years before I met her. I hid it from her for another 10, 11 years. She, like almost every person who is a partner of somebody who discovers there's a porn addiction, asked themselves what they did wrong. Was she not sexy enough in bed? Was she not adventurous enough? Did she not do something she should have done? And none of that is the case. How, if I had an addiction at 12 years old, how could somebody I met at 26 years old have anything to do with it? They don't, but it's absolutely natural. They ask themselves and not just that, but they ask themselves, what else should I not believe? What else is this person lying about? Can I trust anything out of this person's mouth? Who am I even with? Who am I married to? And when that hits deep, it is dark and it is it is really bad. I I don't think that trauma hits partners in addiction any worse than it does with sexually based addictions, whether that's infidelity and and sex addiction or intercourse addiction, whether that's porn addiction, whether that's something that's more of an outlier like exhibitionism or voyeurism. When you find out that this person you think you know everything about is like this and has hit it so well. It rocks a lot of people's worlds, and it's uh, it's it's tough for them to to move forward because their entire foundation has been rocked. And dealing with them is a very, very, uh, in in some ways it's almost tougher and it's almost, uh, it's, it's even more tragic than dealing with an addict because these people didn't ask for this. These people didn't cause this. These people just happened to be an innocent bystander to somebody's disease. And, uh, it basically, they were holding a grenade and it blew up. And now they have to try to put themselves back together.
0: So how do you coach couples through this? And, and you know, you said well, that- you,
1: first, first, you do it separately, because ultimately what you need each person to do is recognize that they are responsible for their health they're responsible for their happiness. Yes, you need a network, you need support, you need people like me who can give you ideas and talk about how others have got through it, but ultimately it will fall on the individual's shoulders. You know, I can't make anybody uh, look at porn. I can't make anybody stop looking at porn. They have to make that decision. I can't make you trust your spouse again and uh, your spouse can't make you trust them again. That has to happen in time. You have to make that decision. And it's really a matter of walking through things and having people talk about their own trauma, how they feel so broken, how they, because when somebody has betrayal trauma, I believe betrayal trauma, especially between a boyfriend, girlfriend, or husband, wife, or any two uh, sexual partners, I believe that that is really just uh, another trauma and it's the latest trauma from somebody who I prayed would never traumatize me because just about every client I talk to, whether they are an addict or whether they are a partner of an addict has some kind of trauma story from youth. So usually we have to go there. Most of the clients I deal with who are addicts, only 20, 25% of it is the actual work of developing tools to stay away from the addiction, because the addiction is just a symptom of a bigger problem. The bigger problem being that unresolved trauma. Well, I cannot think of a single client I've dealt with or a single client I've ever spoken to any other practitioner about who their betrayal trauma was their first trauma there's usually unresolved trauma in their lives as well. Just because they didn't become an addict of some sort doesn't mean they didn't stuff down their feelings, doesn't mean they didn't figure out some other way to cope with it, some other way to survive with it. So despite the fact that one person may be a porn addict and the other is the poor partner of a porn addict who just found out, a lot of times it's the same road they have to go on. They have to deal with that trauma and once they start to deal with that trauma, then you can get them together and talk about what happened, talk about their uh, their 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 shared trauma, talk about how this evolved. One of the other certifications I have is as a uh, therapeutic disclosure specialist, because so many people want to know what their partner did. So many people need to know what their partner did to move forward. But one of the... Least healthy most dangerous things you can do is just be sitting watching Netflix one night and either you start asking questions of your betray, betraying partner or the betraying partner starts blurting the stuff they did to the person sitting next to them and they don't have somebody there guiding them through that process because they can cause a lot more damage. Some people just need to hear headlines. Some people need to hear every little detail. Some people need to think about what they need to hear for a while. So I do that with couples as well. After I've worked with both of them individually, we do a therapeutic disclosure talking about how to, um, you know, let's get to a place where we're on the same page. And yes, this is dangerous because you may hear stuff you you are, are that is a non-negotiable and you are going to walk. That's a possibility. You can tell yourself it's it's not going to be that way, and that's fine as well but you know you can't unring a bell once it's been wrong. You can't unhear things once they've been said. So we go through that process very carefully. We get them together, talk about these things very carefully. And then I work with both of them individually and them as a couple Um, to try to get through this section of things and try to begin to build the trust again. If both parties are absolutely into it, if both parties are willing to do the hard work, you can have wonderful results. I've seen wonderful results again and again. It's when both parties aren't willing to do that for whatever reason that you develop the problems, you get more resentment, you get more anger, you get people who relapse, you get people who go off and develop other addictions to deal with the stress from this situation. Um, it's, it's, It's very difficult. And it's very different from case to case to case. This isn't like a broken leg where, well, in six weeks, we'll take an X-ray and determine where you are. And in eight weeks, we'll cut the cast off. There are people who I have met with them five, six times, and they seem perfectly fine after. And when I follow up, they still seem perfectly fine. And there are people who I have worked with for a year who I think will need to be working with either me or somebody forever because they're, they are just built in a way they need that. I've been in therapy for 25 years. One of my best friends was killed at 20. I started going to therapy. And while I never mentioned I had the addiction to pornography until it all came to a head, you know, I'm one of those people who will need therapy forever. When things are bad, I go every week. When things aren't bad, I go about once a month just to check in but it's having people around you. That is the most important thing. Having people who know what they're talking about and having people who have been there and can be poster children for success. You know, if I can kick uh, porn addiction and alcoholism at the same time, well, anybody can do this. If, if I, if I can, anybody can. And that's what I try to be to my clients, to people on shows I come on like this, to when I'm talking in colleges or libraries or churches, I try to be that guy who they can say, yeah, I heard a guy, or I know a guy, or I saw a guy who got through this. And if he can, anybody can. That's really what I'm about.
0: I, I really appreciate you, you going through all of this with me and, and the audience. I wanted to touch on your book a little bit before we go. Uh, you, you wrote three books, but the, yep. the most recent one is The Addiction Nobody Will Talk About. No, that was
1: actually my first book.
0: Oh, that's your first one.
1: Yeah, My latest book is called Porn in the Pandemic, How Three Months in 2020 Changed Everything. Because the online world of pornography, you want to talk about the greatest thing that could possibly happen. Everybody has to stay home. Nobody can go out and have casual sex. Here's a machine that will deliver all the naked people you want. And you look at statistics from 2019 to 2020 from a, a site like Pornhub, which is you know one of the big ones. And you were talking about in America from day-to-day, 2019, 2020, we were up as much as 40% some days on that one website. And if you look over in Europe, places like Italy, Spain, France, there were some days they were up over 60%. And I don't even think that's the lasting uh, problem with the pandemic. The lasting legacy of the pandemic when it comes to porn addiction is going to be the proliferation of do-it-yourself porn, like cam sites, like OnlyFans, like these sites where you can make pornography at home and then sell it on your own terms on the internet. That industry... has blown up. And when I was doing the reporting for my last book, um, and I I was a journalist by trade for for about 20 years. So, you know, I I, I do like doing this kind of stuff. I interviewed a bunch of people who were veterans of of cam sites and OnlyFans and that kind of thing. And I interviewed a bunch of newbies in early 2020. Um, And what scared me was three months later when I went back and interviewed them, a lot of the veterans were talking about the money still. A lot of the veterans could tell me how their clients changed in the early days of the pandemic. But those younger models, the you know 18 to 21, um, guys and girls who lost their waitressing jobs, lost their bartender jobs, they went online, started making porn of themselves and selling it. What And they were like, I can make great money. This is amazing. Three months later, what I heard from a lot of them was, you know, I can never get a date in real life. And suddenly, I've got guys from all over the world who will pay $40 to see my butt. Or, you know, I I can't get a girlfriend, but I have had three different women, you know, propose marriage to me. They love me. And what I heard and what bothered me during the reporting of this book was that, I heard a bunch of models online getting a dopamine fix, being meant to feel like they were worthy and they felt good. And it gave them it gave them the high that I got from pornography. And when you think about it, is creating pornography really all that different than consuming pornography. One person's a producer, one person's a consumer. It's just different sides of the same coin. And while we talk about you know high-speed internet starting 20 years ago, and how that was probably the beginning of porn addiction on the consumer side, I truly believe that during COVID-19, when we've had millions and millions, and I'm not exaggerating, but millions and millions of people begin to produce pornography of themselves for sale. Um, that's, That's scary because I believe many of these people, when they're 40, when they're 50, they're probably gonna still be online making porn of themselves. And it's not gonna be about the money. I bet in 20 years, they're making less money than they do now. They're doing it for the dopamine hit. They're doing it for the attention. They're doing it for the reason that people can't keep their phone downs when they hear a buzz on it. They need that little bit of recognition. They need that little bit of validation. They need that little hit of dopamine that makes them feel better and makes them feel okay. We are a traumatized world that is just trying to feel okay and anybody who's listening that doesn't have an addiction that doesn't have someone in their life with an addiction that is kind of doing okay and was just here to listen and you know see what they could learn just try not to traumatize other people. I think that we did that in this country. And in this world, we don't think about how our words and how our actions affect other people, or we haven't for a long time. And we are living in a society of traumatized people. And that's why we're turning to drugs and gambling and porn and food and all of these not healthy ways to get through, because it makes us feel okay for a few minutes. And damn it, feeling okay for five minutes is better than feeling okay for zero minutes, no matter how it happens.
0: i learned I learned so much today. This has uh, been a great conversation, Josh. Um, for the listeners, how would they go about connecting with you, buying your books, if if they want to uh, have you come and speak to their organization? how would they connect with you?
1: Yeah, it's pretty easy. My website is paddictrecovery.com. You can contact me through there. You can get links to my books there. They're on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all the typical places. Uh, If you still have a bookstore near your house, they may actually be in there, but I haven't seen a bookstore in years, so I don't know. Um, uh, But uh, if you wanna find me on social media, whether it's TikTok or Instagram or any of Twitter, any of those, it's P addict recovery on all of them. My email is p addict recovery at gmail.com. If you can remember the letter P addict recovery, you're gonna find me. And uh, I'm I'm one of the most Accessible people I know online. If you have a question, I'm not going to charge you to answer a simple question. Uh, you know, you can learn about my coaching if you want to go down that road. You can learn about so many other ways. Some people go 12 steps. Some people do research. Some people find online forums. Some people, you know, go to rehab or do therapy. There's so many ways to get well. That saying you don't know how to do it, that just means you didn't look into doing it or you didn't try to do it. Um, Again, if I can get better, anybody can. And ultimately, you know, I just want people to recognize that, you know, I'm married, I've been married almost 20 years, I've got two kids, I've got a good house. I had a great job when all this went down, you know, porn addicts are not just those 20 year old guys who live in their mom's basement that have never kissed a girl in real life. It's not the 75 year old guy running through the park flashing people because he's a weirdo. You know, I'm, I'm sure those guys are porn addicts, but porn addicts can be anybody. I've met people from 13, 14 years old up until the late 70s. Men, women, every religion, every color of the rainbow, every demographic you can imagine from rich to poor, smart to stupid. There is no stereotypical a porn addict. And if you think you have a problem, you probably do. Don't rationalize, don't minimize, get some help and at least figure out where you are. Maybe it isn't a big problem. Wouldn't that be great to know? But if it is a big problem, isn't that even more important to know?
0: I will have links to your website or I'll have the link to your website uh, in the show notes. So Anybody that's viewing this on YouTube or listening to it on any of the podcast platforms, just go to the show notes and the link to Josh's website will be right there. And there's, uh, I've gone through parts of his website. There's a lot of resources, a lot of information. Um, So check it out. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, Our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.